Heritage Radio Network's coverage of the 2017 Chefs Collaborative Summit is supported by the Julia Child Foundation. Welcome to this special episode of Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Kat Johnson, and today I am at the Big Green Egg Culinary Center in Atlanta, Georgia, for one of the first events of the 2017 Chefs Collaborative Summit. This is a workshop about lamb sourcing, butchering, and grilling, sponsored by the Big Green Egg and American Lamb Board. I'm joined right now by the workshop's participants, James Beard Award-winning author and butcher Adam Danforth, farmer Craig Rogers of Border Springs Farm in Patrick Springs, Virginia, and chef Michael Costa of Zaytina in Washington, D.C. Th- guys, thanks for joining me. Thanks Happy so much be for being here. <laughs> awesome. So what you can't see, hopefully we'll have some photos of this, is that all three of the guys are hard at work prepping for this workshop. Um, so first of all, I wanted to ask each of you, Tell me what you're working on right now and what your role in the workshop is. Uh, Craig, do you want to start? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a shepherd, uh, perhaps the oldest of all professions, Um, a pretty humble one at that. And so it's really uh, an honor to be able to be here and um, share the kitchen with with such fabulous chefs and and butchers. But it's really important, the work that's happening here with the Chefs Collaborative, uh, uh, supporting sustainability, and uh, the earnest work of American shepherds and American farmers. Adam, what are you doing? Um, Well, what we're going to be focusing on today is a discussion that has to do with the connection between the life of the animal and the experience of the diner. And... It has a lot to do with the fact that there is a, um, uh, a, a un, un, um, my brain's not working all that well this morning, um, probably because the coffee was too hot and I wasn't able to drink it, but the, an unequivocal link between the quality of the life of the animal and the quality of the experience of the diner. And what a lot of diners don't realize is that the emotional response that they have to food is based so much on flavor and how that flavor develops is based upon the life of the animal. And so I'm here in order to isolate individual muscles so that people who are at the workshop can begin to understand the connection between the function of a muscle and the experience they have eating it. And then as chefs who are going to be here begin to integrate that information into how they take it back and create better experiences for their own diners. And so having, you know, an amazing shepherd who's able to give a great life to the animal and having an amazing chef who's able to translate that into really interesting dishes that celebrate the quality of the muscles themselves is part of what we're all here. So I'm the intermediary link that is basically just the mechanical uh, difference between an animal that was alive and a material for a chef to need in order to create his um, process. Amazing. And what are you actually butchering right now? Um, right now, I'm cutting a muscle that's called. Um, uh, <laughs> I really. We'll need edit that. it. I really later. need that copy. <laughs> um, it's called subscapularis, and it's uh, also known as uh, maybe an underblade steak or a blade steak or something like that. It's a small muscle that in sheep most of the time you would never have a chance to eat, and that's one of the great things about these workshops is that participants will have a chance to experience individual muscles that normally you don't have access to because people don't take the time to isolate and butcher them that way. 
As a shepherd, I've never seen that cut, actually. Wow. I've seen it on beef, but never on lamb. So that was Michael. Michael, tell me a little bit about what you're going to be working on today in the workshop. Uh, so uh, in a lot of ways, I think that my role is the... I hate to say the way that the, the media portrays us is we get all of this sort of fame and recognition when we're really doing like 1% of what it takes to put food on the plate. So, um, you know, I kind of swoop in here at the last minute, rub some spices on something, put it in an oven, and then people, you know, gasp and swoon. Um, what I'm currently uh, doing I'm, I'm, is... I'm banking on the gasp and swooning We'll see. Part. We'll see. <laughs> um, I'm... Uh, He's uh, fabricated some beautiful uh, lamb chuck rolls, which is an absolutely incredible uh, cut. And we, uh, I'm, I'm rubbing a couple of different spice blends on there. Um, the first one is uh, from our friend uh, at the restaurant, um, Liar Lev Cars, who has a company called La Boite in New York. Um, best spice blender in the game. One of the most knowledgeable people I've ever met about spices. Uh, we're rubbing his Marrakesh blend on, uh, on the chuck roll. And then there's a spice blend that we make in-house at Zatina that has some uh, Isad Biber, which is also known as Urfa pepper, some cumin, a little bit of dried mint. Um, what's what's the pepper. difference between that and Urfa Biber? It's the same thing. Same it, thing. They're, they're the same okay. thing. It's kind of if, if you feel like uh, speaking Turkish or you feel like uh, speaking English. So okay. Isad Biber is the, the Turkish, uh, and then you'll hear it called Urfa pepper. Urfa is the place where it's commonly grown. Isad refers to the cultivar. And then Urfa Biber, is it roasted? I, they, I have it, never been able to get anybody to give me a totally clear answer on that. I believe they actually ferment them. From okay. the way that the flavor um, develops and the way it smells, and I've seen them raw, they're not dark like that right. in yeah, their yeah. raw state. So I, I believe that they ferment them, but that's one of those uh, secrets that the uh, blender doesn't want to share with us. Um, so I want to turn back to Craig for a second. Um, Craig is... a uh, a sheep farmer, a shepherd. Um, but before that, you had another life as a chemical engineer, and you were the dean of the College of Engineering at the University of South Carolina. So how did you go from that to raising sheep? Um, just moving up in my station in life there is all. This, is, um, this has been the most intellectually challenging thing I have ever done, trying to make a dollar with a, with a sheep farm. Um, and if it wasn't for the dedication of really great chefs like Michael um, and, and those that are here who really have um, a devotion to um, the earnest work of American farmers because the problem is that um, our scale is not large enough for us to be the cheapest. Lamb is expensive to begin with. Lamb from a small farmer is expensive even further. Um, and so, you know, they're banking on the fact that we are doing it right, um, doing it with an ethos that represent them and their restaurants well, and, um, and that the story is actually worth something. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a real pleasure to be able to do it. It's also a real challenge, um, just as it's a challenge for the chefs to be able to find a way to put an expensive piece of meat on a plate and still make it um, attractive for the diner to want to pay for it um, as well. So we're all in this together. It takes me about eight months um, to raise a lamb. It takes um, a cook about um, two minutes to either ruin it or 
um, hopefully to um, honor our work. Don't in, ruin it, Michael. In, 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 a great, in a great way. So We never want to. <laughs> um, you know, so it's the reason why I feel so honored when, when the fabulous chefs actually use our product and, and honor our work in that way. Now, I read that um, you also consider yourself to be a grass farmer. Why is that important to raising lamb? Well, you know, the problem with, uh, with, with lamb in the United States is that it's, you know, whereas in the rest of the world, it's generally the most consumed protein. In the United States, it's not. And I think, unfortunately, there have just been too many Americans, particularly in grandma's generation, who just had bad lamb. And, um, and flavor actually matters. And if you feed them really sweet grasses, you'll end up with a fat that's really sweet and fabulous. And one of the most fun things for me is introducing people to lamb or reintroducing them to lamb and they go, oh my God, I had no idea. And that's part of the problem. If we can just get them to start with a good lamb. And for me, that starts with the grasses. I overseed my pastures with three types of of um, high sugar grasses, perennial rye, um, with uh, some um, uh, red and white clover, a little Timothy or orchard grass, uh, and it actually makes a difference. Um, you have a lot of chefs who, who buy from you and put their lamb, put your lamb on their menu. Do you have a favorite dish a chef has made using your lamb? Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, you know, it's actually one of the fun things is I've been selling to great chefs for about 10 years and I still end up being surprised by new cuts. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, a chef at Farm in Bluffton, um, made a lamb cheek pie that just blew me away. It was kind of a riff on a tomato pie, but with lamb cheek in it. Um, and lamb cheeks is a new product for me. Um, my previous processors never wanted to really skin the head to be able to harvest cheeks. Uh, and you don't get you don't get your heads back. Um, it, it, sometimes I do. It, it's just that it's more. It's almost more trouble than it's worth. One of the problems for for our American shepherds is that raising the lamb is almost the easiest part. It's the logistics that's so so hard and that's so costly. And, um, and there's nothing sustainable about losing money. And so <laughs> everything that we do, we have to find a way to be able to make a dollar on it. And that means the shipping or if it's heads, somebody has to actually buy them all. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of cheeks in order to make a pie out of lamb cheeks. Um, it is. It is. So right now there's one chef who has them and we're going to be adding a few more. Um, awesome. as time goes on. Um, but it's just like um, the first time I ever had lamb fries, Litton Hopkins at restaurant Eugene um, introduced me to those and I thought they tasted like vanilla pancakes. Um, <laughs> they were just, they were just, just fabulous. So I'm always, always surprised. Fries, fries meaning testicles? Uh, the, indeed it is. 
Yeah. One of my cooks actually showed me how to clean those. We had gotten some, and I didn't know what to do, and he just went over, totally naturally peeled them, and we have called him Huevos ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was in, um, I was in Copenhagen recently for the Butcher's Manifesto Summit, and, and a woman, a Swiss woman there who um, prides herself on, um, on being an avid consumer of, of what they call the fifth quarter, um, which is all the sort of offal and things like that, made this testicle ceviche, which was really incredible, made out of, um, I think, veal, veal, or I think, I think. Um, either way, it was, um, it, was, it was beef balls of some sort, and um, lightly, lightly cured, I think, with lime juice, and then par-frozen, and then sliced on a meat slicer, and served raw. And not only not only was it amazingly delicious, but also the it was amazingly beautiful, like the pattern of, of what was um, what was exposed that way. So I never I never had that before, just until a couple weeks ago. Well, I certainly haven't either. But another one of my favorite dishes is actually lamb heart tartare. Oh. That will just surprise everyone. No mineral flavor. Doesn't taste like like organ meat in any way. Tastes like the richest ribeye you've ever, ever had, and it's just fabulous. But that's the nice thing about being a shepherd, having these fabulous chefs, is um, they're always looking at how to do something, generally with the cheapest parts, um, which generally are those that have the most flavor, and you can be the most creative with them. You know, it's gonna be pretty hard these days for somebody to surprise me with a rack of lamb. Um, I make a pretty good rack of lamb at home. It's one of the nice things about lamb is that it's really easy to cook. It has all the flavor, so all you need is some olive oil, salt, and pepper, and you're off to the races. Um, anything else is just being fancy, and I leave that to my chefs, but if you come, come to my place, you're getting olive oil, salt, and pepper, and you're gonna taste my lamb. That's great, let, let the, the animal come through, yeah. Um, so Adam, yeah. I wanted to ask you, you, well, first of all, can you tell me what you're wearing? The my pants? No, the shoes. You're underneath your apron. Oh, um, <laughs> the chainmail. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things when I talk about equipment for what I use, um, a lot of what I try to talk about is the approachability of how you don't actually need expensive stuff to do butchering. Um, you know, the knives that I use are affordable knives. What I'm using, cutting with right now, is an F Dick knife and also a Wustoff knife and a Swebo knife and. Um, but the one piece of equipment that is expensive is the chainmail, and that's what I have underneath this apron. And it's the only um, it's the only safety equipment that I have. And the reason being that most of the time the working surface that we all use is about at 30 to 32 inches, mm -hmm. which resides pretty much just below the waist. And there's an artery called the femoral artery, which runs on the inside of your leg. And if you end up, if you were here watching, and, and as well, you are here watching, but if listeners were here watching, you could see that you know a lot of the knife movement that I do ends up drawing a knife towards me. And mistakes happen and if you nick the femoral artery you have less than two minutes to live and for the most part that's um, an equation that's not going to work out for you so that's one reason why I think is a life-saving piece of equipment that I wear also there's like a lot of sensitive organs that are right there that you also don't want to puncture so um, it's you know it's the one piece of safety equipment and it's a thing that I recommend everyone who wants to get into butchering to invest in they're you know they're around two hundred dollars and it might save your life so I'd say that's worth it 
yeah. And, and you know, and it's not just um, hyperbole. I know people who've died on cutting floors. So, wow. um, yeah. Cool. Um, so not you, to be all like yeah. doom and gloom, but. But yeah. Uh, you, you trained at one of the only professional meat processing programs in the country. Uh, what program was that, and, and then where did that training take you afterwards? Um, it's, I'm not even sure if they're still running that program. Um, a, sad, a sad state of butchery in America is that there's really no great program for learning, um, learning meat cutting like there is in other places in the world. Uh, so... There's no, there's meat science programs at ag schools, and they certainly have butchery components to them, but in the area of what could be considered artisanal or whole animal or craft butchery, there's no program like there is, let's say, in Germany, where you can become a master butcher in three years and you have apprenticeships and things like that. So this was, you know, several years ago, and I had a fortunate opportunity to do this crash course program that was meant to address some of the shortcomings that have to do with, um, I guess, talent of cutters in processing facilities. It wasn't something that was culinary focused necessarily, but the fact is that for local meat people, and Craig can probably also talk more about this, is that access to slaughterhouses is one of the main bottlenecks of getting local meat into local markets. And what doubles down on that limitation is also the limited availability of people who actually understand anatomy and understand how to cut meat in those processing facilities. So the, the aim of the program several years ago was to address the fact that building brick and mortar slaughterhouses is not gonna be one of the options. But what we can do is educate more people. So that's my next question, is that you, you work with individual farmers to teach them how to butcher their own animals. Why do you think that that is important? Um, well, I work with farmers, but I work also with anybody who wants to better understand their relationship to meat and also moving a little bit further, their relationship to animals that sustain us. So by teaching on-farm slaughtering and whole animal butchery and meat and flavor science, I aim to, one, challenge people's stigmas around what they think they're experiencing when they eat meat, or also what their ideas of quality are, which is sort of a nebulous term, but where flavor and texture, which have inverse relationships, end up connecting into their ideas of what quality are. And, and in the end, what people's emotions end up being when they consume meat, which um, has immense possibilities for having positive impacts. But what's happened is that we've um, reduced the impact of those through the way that commercial meat is being raised so frequently. So, you know, farmers are one of the main links to that. And these days, as farmers are also expected to interact with consumers more through farmers markets and things like that, it's imperative that they also understand an aspect of anatomy and also understand an aspect of, um, you know, how the animal that they've raised can be then conveyed appropriately to a consumer. And as Craig mentioned, who's going to pay the price for the way that animals needed to be shepherded is that um, there's a value proposition there that needs to be conveyed appropriately. And so farmers need to understand all of those components. So I, you know, I teach them on farm slaughtering and butchering, but more I try to involve them in a conversation that has to do with linking all these various different parts of so farmer, processor, chef, butcher, and consumer. 
Um, so, Michael, I wanted to ask you a few questions before we run out of time. Um, so you're currently the head chef of Zaytinia, um, yes. which is part of Jose Andres Restaurant Group. Can you tell yes. me a little bit more about that restaurant, the kind of food that you're serving? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, lamb is a huge part of what we do. Uh, so are vegetables. Um, we serve Greek, Turkish, and Lebanese food. Uh, everything that we do is inspired by the traditional cooking, but I, I really am a big fan of the idea of tradition plus innovation that we, we sit on very firm ground when we understand how our grandmothers cooked and we understand their stories and why they did things the way that they did. But there's no reason to be bound by that. You know, there's no reason why we can't um, think of new and, and interesting ways to, to cook. Um, we are actually opening a second location in Frisco, Texas. This will be the first time there's ever been two Zatinas, so we're very wow. excited about that. Congratulations. A lot of really awesome uh, meat down there. Uh, Capra is a, a producer we're very excited to be exploring. Um, some of the best animal welfare uh, treatment you'll see anywhere. Um, and as far as what we're... Is that, uh, is that goat? Uh, no, they have lamb. They have they, lamb. Okay. Yeah. Um, we actually do work with goat. I get goats from a, a guy named Brad Parker uh, at Pipe Dreams a Farm in Greencastle, Pennsylvania. He um, dry ages them for us for a week, and it makes all the difference. The chops you throw right on the grill, they're tender as butter. They're amazing. Um, but as a as a chef, I mean, it's it's interesting for me to hear you talk about the emotional experience of the guests because that's what we're principally focused on all day, every day. Uh, Danny Meyer said it perfectly that it's all about how you make people feel. It's that easy and it's that hard. And you know, our our job as the sort of final storyteller is to make sure that people understand the experience, hopefully in the way that we'd like them to. But more than anything, just that they enjoy it and have a good time. You know, it's not an accident that Jose has foosball tables at Haleo. It's it's all about making people smile, making their day better. And when you're feeding them meat that's been raised well, it's very easy to sleep at night knowing you've done them some good. Do, do you really incorporate talking about your farmers, um, whether it's where you're getting your meat or, or your produce? Do you make that a point to talk about that to your guests day to day? Absolutely. Uh, there's some of that on our menu, but we've all seen that kind of absurdist thing where every single solitary item on every single menu item is called out by name by the farm. And it can be a little laborious reading that document. Uh, we call out some of the ones that we think um, best represent who we are and what we want to do. But, um, you know, we we don't want to beat people over the head with it. You know, like we talk about the emotional experience, you know, people don't show up to the restaurant for a lecture necessarily. I mean, some people do. But we want to make sure that the people that are curious get all the information that they want, but that the people that just want to come have fun and have dinner get to do that too. Um, so we heard from Craig that he likes to just do the rack of lamb super simple um i wanted to ask you as well the lamb can maybe be a little intimidating to novice cooks who've never tried cooking it before do you have any starter tips for someone who's like gonna go out and buy a rack of lamb or another cut of the lamb uh rack is a pretty easy thing to start with it's almost harder to mess those up than it is to to cook them correctly if you have a butcher that knows what they're doing and and trims them nicely uh you're you're in pretty good shape to start with I would say, for, for me, don't, don't complicate beyond what is necessary. Um, it's amazing what just salt and the right level of heat and the Maillard reaction can do to the flavor of a piece of meat. I think cooks really like to think about how they can add value by doing all of these fancy marinades and rubs. And in my opinion, the, the best marinade there is is salt. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And certainly, the number one rule for lamb is don't overcook it. Yes. So if it's a roast... You don't ever want to go over 130, um, and it will be absolutely fabulous. And let the meat do the talking. And uh, Craig, can you just explain what, what was just brought in here? 
Well, let's see. So I have a um, leg of lamb um, that from from the big green egg uh, that's been smoked um, with some uh, pecan, being that we're here in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, to what temperature? 130. Um, we have Denver ribs. So this was a cut that, um, shoot, 10 years ago, nobody, nobody used. Um, the short ribs, so it's the part of the ribs below the rack of, of lamb, and just absolutely delicious. Again, these were smoked, um, but these are smoked to about 190, and, um, and then I drizzle a little bit of, uh, of honey on them. Uh, that has a rub on them. The, the leg of lamb is just salt, pepper, olive oil. My pepper of choice, though, is bourbon barrel um, food smoked smoked pepper so if there's yeah, that a whole secret... range is awesome their Worcestershire sauce is the best in the game yeah. in my opinion and then I have a they also produce a great soy sauce yeah. oh yes oh, it's... which is the only I think open barrel fermented traditional soy sauce in the country that's domestically made Matt 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 I... Jamie yeah and, and he's now a Japanese rock star because of his Kentucky soy sauce. All you have to do is taste it side by side with commercial soy. There's no comparison. It yeah. really develops flavor. And then it's not I have just a, salt. A shoulder that was smoked for um, 16 hours. So that's just going to fall off the, the bone. Um, Craig showed up really early for this workshop. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm quite fortunate that, um, um, that Big Green Egg is a real supporter of American lamb. And so we've started a program called green eggs and lamb I so love it. i have uh <laughs> so i have a number that's, of that's big brilliant. green eggs at, at the farm that we've used for our for our festival uh called lamb stock each year where chefs from across the country will come and camp out in my sheep pastures for three days and cook over open fire and on big green eggs um and so yeah i i had a head start yeah, I've got one at my house, too. I do everything from pizza to steaks, burgers, slow roasts. It's amazing how versatile a piece of cooking equipment it is and how great things taste when you cook it in them. Absolutely. Well, it is smelling delicious in here. Um, I know that we're getting close to the workshop, and you guys have still some stuff to do to get ready, so I'm going to let you get back to setting up. Thank you all three for joining me. This has been great. Our pleasure. Thanks so much. This has been Kat Johnson for Heritage Radio Network, speaking with butcher Adam Danforth, farmer Craig Rogers, and chef Michael Costa at the 2017 Chefs Collaborative Summit workshop on lamb sourcing, butchering, and grilling, sponsored by the Big Green Egg and the American Lamb Board. Thanks for listening, and head to heritageradionetwork.org for all of our coverage of the 2017 Chefs Collaborative Summit.